Welcome back, everyone. I'm Tony Brown, and you're listening to Firearms Cafe, the show where we discuss the philosophies of responsible firearms ownership, as well as the relevant issues and challenges that we face in the current gun culture. Before we jump into the show, let's get the contact info out of the way. You can contact me several different ways. I have the voicemail, which is area code 206-745-2731. You can also record an MP3 or WAV file and email that to me for the show. If you're not comfortable with recording an audio message, please feel free to contact me via email, and I'll read out your comments on the next show. The address for both email and audio content is firearmscafe at gmail.com. Again, that's all one word, firearmscafe at gmail.com. I also have a Facebook listener page, a Twitter account, and a YouTube channel. There are buttons for these at the website, so please go there and click on those buttons and like me on Facebook, follow me on Twitter, and subscribe to me on YouTube. These are all free. I'm looking forward to hearing from you soon. Thank you for spending your time with me and listening to the show. Hello again, everybody, and welcome back to the show. Today is Sunday. It's the 25th of August, 2013, and this is episode 100. Well, it took me long enough to get here since I've been podcasting basically since, what, June of 2008, something like that. But uh, it's been a fun journey. It's I, I've met a lot of interesting people and definitely people that I would not have known or met had I not been doing the show. So I am grateful for that. I'm, I'm also very thankful for the time that you spend with me. Uh, let's take care of a little bit before we jump into the show proper. Let's take care of a little bit more housekeeping type stuff. I do have over on the website, which is firearmscafe.com, the Amazon widget, and if you do a search through that and end up actually buying something, I will get a percentage of that. Now, of course, it doesn't. the prices haven't been raised for you. It doesn't cost anything. It's sort of like a finder's fee, so there's no additional cost to you. But if you are going to buy something anyway, if you could go through my site first, uh, again, it can help mitigate some of the cost of the show, so paying for the bandwidth and the hosting and the domain names, all that kind of jazz. Also with Facebook, what I've been trying to do, and I think I'm getting better at it, is I've been trying to make sure to do updates on when the show is going to come out, if there's going to be delays, uh, things of that nature. So if you haven't already, go over to the Facebook listener page, which is just Firearms Cafe, and like it, and then you'll get the updates. Now, I don't... don't, um, put lots of stuff unless it's directly show-related there. Uh, so you're not going to get tons of updates. What I am going to start doing, though, with this and with my other show, which is The Armed Ape, on the Facebook page, if somebody sends in pictures and, and things like that, I'll get, of course, I'll get permission first. But if they've got a picture of a gun or a product or something that we're we're talking about, I'm going to post that picture at least to the Facebook page. And then, uh, I know this will be a little ambitious for me, but I'll also try and do a link to the product and things like that, or the guns or, or that type of stuff. If it's a gun, it would be a, just a link to the manufacturer's site, that type of deal. Uh, let's see, and I think that's about it for behind-the-scenes stuff. So let's go ahead and let's kind of do a little bit of a wrap-up with the Zimmerman stuff. When I was, I've been thinking about this quite a bit, and it seems that a lot of people have invested a lot of emotion into their discussions or arguments or their side, however you want to, however you want to phrase it to the point 
to where they they've sort of set aside logic and reason and aren't aren't looking at the thing clearly aren't looking at what happened and aren't looking at some of the events that led up to the shooting and I've heard on other shows and I've heard uh, you know other people discussing things like uh, well let's just jump in and we'll we'll talk about him getting out of the car and we'll use that for an example of how people are attaching their emotion to it and not because they they want the outcome to be justified and this again is from both sides they want the outcome to be seen a certain way so they're not using just logic so again if we say he got out of the car and he got out of the car because he didn't really know where he was and he was looking for an address now this is in Zimmerman's words that's the reason he got out and when people say, well, he never should have got out of the car, he should have stayed in the vehicle, you get a couple of, of different arguments. You get the argument of, well, he had every right to get out of that car, and he was well within his legal means to walk around. And that's true. He, you know that, that was the right. But just because you have the right to do something or, or legally... You wouldn't be in the wrong to do something doesn't necessarily mean that it's the safest course of action or the most prudent course of action for you to not be harmed or for you to not have to involve yourself in a situation that you that you can't control that spirals down and then you end up having to take actions that maybe you didn't want to. We also hear the argument, and, and I, I get this a lot because I'm always very cautionary on, number one, when I would get involved in a situation and to the extent that I would get involved in a situation. And you get the argument of people saying, well, if you don't get involved, you're a coward or you're a wimp and we're becoming a nation of of soft, you know, Casper, milk toast, wiggly worms, you know, if we're not jumping in and we're not doing this stuff. And a lot of times they will give examples that have nothing to do with the situation that you're talking about. So specifically with this Zimmerman case and what happened, when you say, well, he should have stayed in the car and not and not gotten involved to the level that he did, people say, well, what would happen if you saw, you know, somebody... Uh, a grown man beating children to death with a shovel. What would you do if you were driving down the freeway and there was somebody out in the middle of the road? Or, you know, would you go and help them or would you just stay in your car? And again, they're they're kind of engaging in, in sort of those emotional red herrings because they're not really giving examples of that, that really pertains to that situation. So you're really getting kind of an apples and oranges argument. Or sometimes they'll do, uh, you know, things to where if if you try and argue their point, it makes you, like, look really bad. So they're like, well, you, so you wouldn't help some, some woman who's getting raped or you wouldn't help some child who's being beaten to death on the side of the road? What kind of person are you? 
and what they're doing is they're 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 gaining that kind of emotional or or in some aspects like that moral high ground to where you have to say, well, of course I would help that person, and then they say, aha, then you should have gotten out of the car, and blah blah blah, and it, that's it's really not again it's that sort of it's almost like apples to concrete. It's not even that they're comparing two types of food. But again, because they want, they've got, they're emotionally tied to it. And I've talked in past shows about how sometimes when we see that somebody has a gun, we, and if they're, let's say, a permit holder, we immediately jump to their side. And we don't really look past the fact that they're just a gun owner, that they're pro-gun. Well, that person may be a total jerk or, or maybe they were in the wrong. Maybe the things that they did were wrong. And we can't just automatically jump to that person's defense. We have to know what's going on. We have to look at the facts. We have to kind of take that emotion out of it. So again, if we look, if, if we were in, let's say, a training class and somebody had printed up a short synopsis of what happened, and they would say, okay, well, what would you have done different? What could have been done different? What could person A, who ends up being the person who defends themselves with a firearm, what could they have done different to avoid that outcome? And when we look at the, at, at the Zimmerman case, especially if we're going to look at it as sort of an academic, excuse me, an academic exercise, what we see is there are several things that he could have done differently. And I'm not trying to necessarily Monday morning quarterback it, but what I'm trying to do is let's say, let's look at it as a learning opportunity and let's pretend that this is just something that we're seeing on a paper so that we don't have necessarily large uh, emotional investments in 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 this exercise a lot of the time uh, a lot of times in our culture and especially when uh, when we're armed and we're armed all the time any incident that we're going to involve ourselves in is going to have a firearm there it may not be deployed other people may not know that we have it the incident may may start peak and then end without that firearm ever being brought into play. But it's still there. So keeping that mind in mind as armed individuals, we do have to be very, very conscious of the level at which we're going to involve ourselves and the level where it's really appropriate for us to. What we don't want to do is make a situation worse. What we want to do if we are helping somebody is help that situation. We don't want to complicate it. We don't want to cause things to happen that maybe wouldn't happen if if we had gone uh, lessened our involvement as far. So if, if we're not just jumping right into the deep end of the pool, but instead we're getting in at the shallow end and, and, and walking in. We talk a lot about situational awareness. And we talk a lot about looking around and knowing what's going on and being aware of the people that are around you. 
All right, so what we're talking about was situational awareness. And you guys may hear in the background some uh, banging around and things like that. We are having some repair work done. Uh, so I may be sort of in and out with this. But you got to take the opportunity to record where you, when and where you can. Anyway, um, getting back to the situational awareness. We look at, you know, uh, our surroundings. We look at the people and, and we think, you know, is this person uh, appropriate here? Or is this person, is it normal for that person to be here? And you could say that in, in some ways what Zimmerman did was he did do that because he looked at a person and said, well, it's kind of rainy out. This guy's kind of wandering around. So he was situationally aware of that. But also a big part of situational awareness is knowing what your location is so that if you are driving around, you at least have an idea. Or if you're walking, if you're out doing a walk or a jog, you are aware of what street you're on. You're aware of what address, or not maybe not necessarily the actual address, but you're aware of the direction. So you know that if you're going down Elm Street, that you're heading east on Elm Street. And the closest major cross street to you is, I don't know, like Fifth Avenue. Also part of situational awareness is having the equipment or tools that can aid you with that. So we see that Zimmerman, I don't know that he had a flashlight. He may have had one in the vehicle with him. Uh, but for whatever reason, he was distracted by being on the phone. And when he got out of the vehicle, either he didn't take it or he didn't have it. So again, having a, a flashlight on you, it, it doesn't have to be, you know, a, a four-cell mag light, you know, with the uh, the big batteries and everything. It doesn't have to be a giant club. You can look at flashlights from uh, Surefire, from Streamlight. You can look at um, Phoenix makes decent ones. Now, some people say they're not that great of a weapons light uh, with the Phoenix brand, which may be true. But for a pocket flashlight, uh, I've got one. I think I paid, uh, I don't know, like $30 or something for it. And it puts out a pretty good beam of light. Uh, and also you can go to Walmart and you can get kind of some smaller flashlight that easily fits into the pocket that you have with you all the time. Now, again, if we're looking at this as a sort of a written scenario that is on a, uh, in a training class that we're doing, we would say, well, what equipment could he have had with him that really wouldn't have been that, um, what's the word I'm looking for, um, I guess maybe for a, a lack of a better word, it, it wouldn't have uh, been like a burden to him. So it's not like the guy has, you know, you don't have like, you don't get that Batman belt type look and all that stuff. Uh, there is a, uh, as a, as a quick aside, there's a product out there. It's pricey. Uh, I think it's around 125 to $150. It's called the Tiger Light. And I think, I want to say it was the gun dudes that maybe had the, um, the, the people that maybe invented that, I think they did some interviews with them a while back. But you can go to their website, which is Tiger Light, and I'll put a link in the show notes over there as well. And basically what the Tiger Light is, it's a combination of uh, pepper spray and, and, a and a flashlight. And so when you're holding the flashlight, uh, and it's about the size of, oh, I'm trying to think. 
it looks like it's maybe about maybe the size of like a um, a mouse, like a, a a computer mouse, maybe a little bit longer than that. But and, and when you hold it, you would hold it like you would be holding a regular flashlight and kind of looking around. And if you need to deploy the spray, all you got to do is you just rotate your wrist down. Again, uh, I'll put a link on on onto the um, under their website for Tiger Light. I'll also try and find some YouTube videos uh, if I can find any of people deploying that and put links to those as well. Now, some people would say, holy cow, that is a lot of money to pay for something like that. Uh, especially when you can get a pocket flashlight and maybe have a little can of spray with you. But what's nice, it's all in one package. Um, and it's something that I think that I, I've been thinking seriously about getting something like that. I don't know how long the little cartridges last for before they kind of go inert or, or kind of lose effectiveness or even if they do. Uh, but anyway, what if Zimmerman had had something like that? Or what if you could say, well, that would be maybe a piece of equipment that he could have had to where he could have even like maybe from the safety of his car, shown his light out there. Maybe if he was is cast in the beam and Martin had seen that, he would say, ah, the heck with this. And I'm just going to go, um, you know, I don't know if this guy is maybe security, if this guy is, you know, is, is what he is, an off-duty cop. Who knows? I'm just going to leave. Uh, and again, kind of getting back to the awareness thing. Zimmerman was driving around in his own neighborhood, and he had no idea where he was. Uh, so again, we really need to... And again, we're, what we're doing here is, is we're we're pulling back on emotion and we're saying, okay, what can we learn from this? And again, if this was a training scenario, we would say, well, you should be at least familiar with your own neighborhood. You should know, you obviously know the street that you live on. You probably you need to know then the street that is behind you, the streets and what their names are, what the closest cross streets are, how you would call for help. All that stuff you should know. You should know that like you know your name, uh, especially in your own neighborhood. Because the reality is that's probably going to be the most likely area, uh, since you're there the most, that something is going to happen. And if you know these things sort of like the back of your hand, like you know your own name or you know your own phone number, in a stressful moment you may be able to relay that information clear. And again, this isn't to try and denigrate Zimmerman or, again, to Monday morning quarterback and say, well, they should have done this, should have done that, blah, 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 blah. It's really to try and let us as armed citizens make appropriate decisions and do things, again, that don't make things worse. If you're there to help somebody, ultimately you don't want to make things worse. What I'm going to do is I'm going to uh, talk. A, uh, I'm going to play a couple of, of uh, newscasts of some things that happened after the verdict. But before I do that, I'm going to drop in a thing from uh, Kevin Smith. If you guys don't know who he is, he's a director. Uh, he made what did he make? Clerks, um, Jay and Silent Bob movies, uh, Red State. 
He's probably done some other stuff. I just can't think of it right now. But anyway, he has a podcast. And in one of the podcasts, he was talking about what reporters want to do and how they have an agenda. And we really saw that in the Zimmerman case. And again, if we were looking at it in that training context and we said, hey, the media is going to have a field day with this guy and they are going to have a clear agenda and they are going to want to tell a certain story and they're not going to let the facts get in the way. If that was on our sheet, again, it's going to affect how you should look at it if you're looking at it logically. If you're saying, well, this is a possibility. So let me go ahead and I'll, I'll, uh, I'll drop that in now. Let me ask you a question, Scott. Do uh, it. Somebody on Twitter the other day, some jackass uh, journalist wanted to interview me for a website. And um, yeah, I say jackass, like not all journalists are jackass. I love talking to journalists. You know, yeah. I love talking about me. And journalists are paid to listen to me talk about me from time to time. So generally, I kind of like them. But this particular person, you... This guy was a rough, creepy loner. This dude came <laughs> over and interviewed me for Zach and Miri back in the day and was just like a little too like rough and like, see, you hate Jed Apatow, don't you? Like, well, I mean, Judd Apatow made me kind of feel... No, you do. Uh, well, all right, maybe. The time. No, I mean, it was... Just say you do. <laughs> that's the, but that's it. Like, this is what I learned over the course of the last few years. It doesn't matter when you sit down and talk to a journalist. The ones I like are the ones that are like, you say too much. I'm just going to put it in Q&A form. Because then I'm like, great. And then I'm representing myself. Yeah, exactly. The ones you don't like are the ones that are like, Smith fondled some poker tips on the table while he thought about the answer to the... No, he didn't. They're writers. <laughs> like, they're writing... They're writing prose about, like... Fiction prose. Yeah, and yeah. they get pissed if you don't fit their story, the story they want to tell. The angle. I, yeah. Like, I, I think I've told this story. There's a journalist from the L.A. Times wrote me a, an email going, Hey, man, can you comment on this Harvey Weinstein story? Is yet another... Harvey's back, bitches! Story. They were on two of in year. He's always back. Yeah. Um, so I'm like, uh, I just put up a blog on the Red Statements. This was a couple months back. And this is not the same journalist I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah. Different one. Today, but oddly enough, they both worked for the LA Times at one point. Dude goes, hey, can you give me some quotes about Harvey? I said, well, I'd know. I said, but I just put up this brand new blog which has this love letter to Harvey at the end. That's where you want to pull from. Feel free. I said, just one up. It's not like everybody's been using it. Yeah. Uh, oh, but I wanted something more specific. And I was like, dude, nobody else has pulled from it. And it's pretty damn specific. It's, it's about how we call their company the Harvey Boys. Obviously, I'm a big fan of the man, blah, blah, blah. And he sends me another fucking email going like, well, I can I just, I, I would like to talk to you about the marketing on Zach and Mary. And I'm like, okay, so you're trying to write a story that you want to write. You don't care what I have to say. Essentially, you want me to say something about the marketing of Zach and Mary, which obviously I'm, I'm not. My thoughts have yeah, yeah. made it clear in the past. And I put up this blog about Harvey quotes. But he's just like, yeah, but it's just, you know, before you were so like mad at him. And I'm like, okay, so again, you have no interest in finding out what I really want to know about Harvey. You just want me to say exactly what you want so i can fit into a story you're writing like yeah. that you're creating in your head and like i told him that email i was like dude i understand like i'm a writer i too try to craft my ideal story the difference is i deal with fucking fake people you know reverend aben cooper he's make-believe yeah, like yeah. you're trying to do this shit with me in make you in a make-believe person yeah i know fucking character in your fucking story go create something <laughs> fucking like ugh. so anyway like that's what you get a lot a lot of people who just want to write what they want
So again, some people may say, well, this guy's a director. Oh, also, I tried to bleep out, the, I tried to reverse and bleep out some of the bad words, so hopefully I got them all. Because um, I do want to keep this sort of family-friendly. So some people may say, well, this guy's a director, and he's talking about, you know, uh, uh, misquotes or this or that, or how the, the person wanted him to say certain things. And it doesn't really have that much to do with firearms. But what it has to do with is it, it shows that if they're willing and if they're if people are wanting to do something like that for something as, I don't know if trivial or frivolous are the right words, but it, on, on something like that, if they want the person to say, well, I want you to say this. I want to write the story that I want to write. I don't want to report on what happened. I want to spin a narrative. If they're willing to do that with him just to get a juicy bit of gossip, how much more willing are they going to be able, willing to do that in a case like that, where there is some controversy, where they can stir things up? And I thought, you know, the, and the reason I played that, and I've had it for a while, but I thought that really, it really kind of dovetailed and mirrored with what happened in the Zimmerman trial. You had an incident that happened where the media clearly wanted to tell the story that they wanted to tell and they didn't want to report on the events. And they went so far as to alter, I hesitate to call it evidence, but they went so far as to alter tapes, to alter uh, photographs, and they basically just put blatant things out there that weren't true. They even tried to alter the race of the individual. So in keeping kind of with our, maybe our situational awareness thing, and with that, what, I'm, what we're talking about here is the totality of everything. So we have the situational awareness of when we look around, we, and if we see anybody unusual, if we see things going on, we have the situational awareness of knowing where we are, of knowing, okay, I'm at Fifth and Elm, and I'm heading east. We have the situational awareness of understanding I need to have certain equipment with me and certain options with me if I'm going to carry a firearm. We have the situational awareness of knowing that the media and that certain groups may want to tell a story a different way. They may want to tell their own narrative and not necessarily report what actually happened. And we have the situational awareness of knowing that if I want to help somebody, if I want to become involved, I need to make sure that I, number one, know what's going on, and number two, that I'm not going to make it worse. So the next thing I'm going to play is dealing with the aftermath. And this was from uh, a couple of uh, news stations out in California. And I'll go ahead and play those now. Passions running high on the streets during a second day of protests over the acquittal of George Zimmerman. Good evening. I'm Ahmed Dates. Crowds are turning violent in Oakland tonight. We're getting reports that rocks and bottles are being thrown at police and reporters have been attacked by protesters. ABC 7 News reporter John Alston has been in Oakland tonight and has the latest on the tense situation. Let's go! Let's go! 
For more than three hours, protesters had complete control of 14th and Broadway near Oakland City Hall, preventing any cars from getting through. Around 8.30, police opened the intersection to traffic. But it quickly deteriorated when demonstrators surrounded frightened drivers who found themselves trapped. The crowd forced them to turn around. Oakland police officers who had been near the corner retreated leaving the helpless drivers without police protection nearby. It's unknown who gave that command. The hundreds had gathered to protest the acquittal of George Zimmerman in the killing of Trayvon Martin. Last night's verdict, um, it, didn't sit, it didn't sit well in my heart because I've been a victim to the, his situation as well in my own neighborhood and higher authorities. I don't feel that that jury was representative of that community, and I think the prosecutor did a very poor job of presenting the case. The afternoon began with a rally at Frank Ogawa Plaza. I just rather see us all just get together and just continue to pray and talk to God and, you know, maybe this thing can stop. Sky 7 HD was overhead as the crowd then marched several miles along Broadway and into West Oakland. There were no arrests or any reported damage. Later, protesters tried to crash a BART station. Then in the middle of Broadway, they set fire to an American flag. Late tonight, a photographer reported to police that he was attacked by the crowd when he wandered into the middle of the group on Broadway. In Oakland, John Alston, ABC 7 News. Breaking news in the Crenshaw District, where a peaceful gathering in Lamert Park to protest the Zimmerman verdict is overshadowed when a group of mostly younger people starts marching but soon runs wild in the streets of South L.A. A tactical alert is in effect as officers move in, declare an unlawful assembly, and start making arrests. Now, let's go to some tape we shot from Air 7 HD tonight. There was a lot of activity. They started off as a relatively small crowd, maybe 40, 50 people. Before long, 100 people, maybe more, and they were crowding the streets. And at one point, we even saw people setting off fireworks in the middle of Crenshaw. Boulevard. Somebody could have been hurt here this afternoon or earlier this evening. There was also an attack. One person was sitting on a bus bench. We saw this guy just get violently attacked out of nowhere. He appeared to be injured. He was walked away by somebody. Uh, no reason for that attack, but we saw him get punched real hard. The Walmart up at the Crenshaw Plaza, we saw a large number of people in that large crowd go into the Walmart, and moments later LAPD officers, they swarmed that Walmart. We're not sure if those people came back out immediately. Not sure if there's any arrests there either. We saw people hitting cop cars in the streets, police cars. We saw people hitting other cars as well, kicking things, throwing car things at cars, and then we watched one portion in the crowd kicking in a door to a storefront uh, back to the street here, a number of people in the street hitting those cars. They saw a number of people here tearing down an iron fence as well in front of a building. It looked like a motel complex, all that activity on Crenshaw Boulevard. And once again, back to our live shot, Crenshaw Boulevard, much quieter tonight. There's the command post just off of Crenshaw, right by Vernon, just below Lambert Park, off to our left. Take a look at Crenshaw Boulevard, which looks terrific right now, very quiet. All the protesters, as far as I can see from the helicopter, they're gone. Reporting live from Air 7 HD, I'm Bill Thomas, ABC 7 Eyewitness News. Bill, thank you very much. A news crew from KCBS KCAL was attacked tonight while covering the story. Their news van was parked just about a half block north of Lamert Park. Two ambulances were called to the scene to treat the injuries. That news crew was injured. We don't know the extent of their injuries. If we get any new deta details on the condition of that news crew, we will bring them to you. All right, well, those newscasts, showed some very interesting things. In the second newscast, a Walmart or a business, I think it was a Walmart, was looks like they were going to start to loot it and riot, and the police swarmed on that. because. And I think the reason that they did that is because they didn't 
they didn't want things to start to spiral out of hand. So they didn't want the Walmart to get looted and then the next store and then the next block and it just kind of spreads and then they become overwhelmed and can't do anything. In the first story, they let the protesters sort of kind of do what they were going to do. It was reasonably peaceful. But when the police tried to restore order and the protesters said, no, we're not having that, the police left. And this is in a state where they tell you, well, you don't really need guns. You don't need to be armed because the police are there are there to help you. Now, I don't think anybody uh, got hurt. It was fortunate, but I'm sure there was some property damage. And I'm sure a lot of people were very afraid and, uh, if you needed to get through there, let's say that, you know, uh, you, you were trying to get home from work or, or maybe you've got a sick kid you're trying to take to urgent care or something like that. And now you've got to kind of detour and do all that stuff. Well, unfortunately, um, the people, the, the authorities that were supposed to help you left, they retreated, they withdrew from the scene. And again, it goes back to that situational awareness of you need to be aware that they've announced the verdict and people are unhappy about that and they're going to be out there. And so if you can all possibly avoid it, you either need to stay home or if you're going, if you have to drive somewhere, know where the protests are taking place. Watch the news. Look, you know, um, you could even call up some of the radio stations and say, hey, we're going to have to do some traveling. Do you know where the protesters are going? Because we don't want to have to drive through it. And they'll probably tell you, or you could even call up the police department and say, Hey, uh, do you have any information on where the protesters are going to be? Cause we want to avoid that area. The police are going to say, you know what? That's a good idea. Make sure you don't go on uh, again, fifth and Elm because they're going to be doing some marches all up along Elm, uh, Elm street from fifth Avenue to 91st Avenue, you know, whatever they're going to do. What was also interesting about those is it's funny when when the media comes under attack or when one of their camera crew gets assaulted or they get rocks or something thrown at them, that's a big deal to them. It's not so much a big deal if you and I get attacked or you and I get rocks thrown at us or our, our car gets, you know, kick, the doors get kicked in. That's just another news day. But when it's them, well, you know, that's something that we need to pay attention to. Uh, because a lot of times the media sees themselves as being apart, being um, not involved in the situation. But of course, when they go down there, they find that a lot of times the protesters are angry and they want to strike out at anybody that, that isn't in their group or anybody that they perceive as having something better than them. Now, let's let's switch tacks a little bit and let's talk a little bit about the ego and having to do with when you're going to get involved. A lot of times when we think about things, when we say, well, if A happens and then B happens, and then C happens, then I will react. Or if I see A happen, boom, I got to go in and I got to, I've got to involve myself. 
But a lot of times in these scenarios, we don't envision that it goes bad. We envision that we go in and stop it and nothing happens to us. Either we envision the our command presence or our display of the firearm or our firing of the firearm stops the intruder, stops the attacker, stops that situation. And we don't really think much more beyond that. And if we do, I'm sure everybody's hailed as the, as the hero. But a lot of times in that thing, if in those scenarios that you're envisioning, you don't envision the chaos. You don't envision uh, if somebody else is being attacked, the brutality and the violence of that. If there's blood, there can be a lot of blood. And a, a little bit of blood on the ground or on somebody looks really, really bad. Even if, And sometimes it can be, but... A lot of times, even if the wound is, this is, uh, I guess, superficial, you can still bleed a lot. Also, if somebody is hurt very badly and they're in a lot of pain, they may be screaming. And it's it can be very unsettling. Uh, it can be very unsettling to watch real violence unfold in front of you. And some people think, well, I've seen a bunch of stuff on television. I've seen a bunch of stuff in the movies. And so I'm a little desensitized to it. But when it's happening right there in front of you, and people are screaming and bones are breaking, and you know that somebody is, is really being hurt, possibly killed right there in front of you, and you know that it's real, and it's not a movie, and it's not a TV show, and it's not a scenario, and it's not a training thing, that's different. And how you're going to react is going to be different. And again, a lot of times people don't don't take that into account. Years ago, I uh, got EMT certified, and... Uh, for a number of reasons, but one of the main reasons was I wanted to, if something happened, I wanted to have the knowledge. And the class was uh, it was relatively cheap. But part of the the uh, the end of the class is you had to go and do I can't remember. It was I think two or three eight-hour shifts in an emergency room. And you were basically kind of there as an observer, but you got to you got to do, you know, stuff because you did have some rudimentary training. And I went to, at the time, I think I went to uh, St. Joseph, which was a trauma one-rated uh, emergency room, which means that the, you know, the, the flight for life choppers will come in there. If really bad stuff happens and they need to get a person, they'll, they'll get them there. So I saw in the time that I was there in the emergency room, several people died. I saw horrific injuries. I saw people that were brought in that were just screaming their heads off. 
I saw bones protruding from bodies. And that was in a controlled situation. And you don't really know how that's going to affect you until you're there. My actually, and a good example of that is I did actual CPR on people. And again, this is in a controlled environment. A couple of people made it, a couple of people didn't. When you're actually doing CPR on a human body, it's, it's, it's much different than doing it on the, the rescue dummy that they give you. Uh, because you're doing stuff for real. Now, of course, in the, in the hospital setting, they had what they called an ambu bag, which is, looked like a big uh, like rubber ball, and it's got a little mask that goes over, and you can squeeze that. So you have one person that's doing that. That's and this is at least how we did it back then. And then what you do is you take turns. Doing, we were taking turns doing compressions. Um, one of the guys that had came in, he had driven himself in, says, oh, I'm having chest pains, and then boom, he was out like a light. And when you're putting your hands on them, and your hands kind of move around because your skin moves around and the muscles move around a little bit. It's different. So I, I, I relate this stuff to say that a lot of the, the reality when the real situation goes down is very different than what you think it's going to be in your head. And how you're going to react, may, you may react a little bit differently. You may freeze. Even though in your head you think, well, I'm not going to freeze. I'm going to react. You may not freeze for 10 seconds. You may only freeze for a second or two. And then you're going to jump in and react. Or you may react right away. I don't, you know, it, it depends on the situation. But a lot of people don't want to think about that. And they don't want to say, well, that could happen to me. I could freeze. I could panic. And part of that is, is because they don't want to get their ego in check. They want to think of themselves as a, in a certain light, in a certain way. And it's good to have goals and it's good to strive to be certain things. But you can't let your ego get in the way to where you can't recognize this is an area that I may need to work on or this is something that I need to think through a little bit more and not picture myself as the hero and as the good guy but instead picture myself as what can I do to make things better? How can I really help that person who is in need of assistance? And a lot of times it's that ego that some people, they will let that ego lead them into a situation where they shouldn't be in one or where they involve themselves to a greater degree than they should have. So again, we talk about the example of having uh, jumping into the deep end of the pool or walking in. Both ways, you're still going to get in the pool. You're still involved, but there's a big difference in your position and what you can do and what's going to be able to be controlled by you. So in some sense, we really need to be able to control the ego. We need to be able to, I guess, control our pride. And I guess the question that you should ask is, which would you rather have wounded? Your pride 
or your wife or your child? Which would you rather kind of take a beating? Your ego or you? Which would you rather have be cut deep? You or your ego? And if you think about it logically, you can say, well, it's better for me to work these things out and thought exercises and get my ego in check. You don't have to kill the ego, but you need to get it in check. You need to control it. So that, again, your pride, your sense of what you think needs to be done is in check and, and lets you make logical and rational decisions in a situation that may not be logical and may not be rational. It may be a very high-stress and emotional situation, but hopefully you'll be able to fall back on logic and reason because that's how you've tried to do everything. Now, I, I take a lot of grief. I, I, I think I've said before, but I've t- I, I take a lot of grief and I get a lot of emails when I talk about this of, of people that say, again, going back to that thing of, well, you know, what happens if there's a school bus on fire being attacked by piranhas and tarantulas and wolves? And, you know, that person you're, you're probably just not going to really convince. But I truly believe that what you need to do is you need to understand that there is a cost for involving yourself and that things may not go the way that you think that they're going to go. And that doesn't mean that even if, but once you've weighed everything and you've kind of done some of this stuff beforehand, it doesn't mean that you're not going to get involved. But what it may mean is that you walk into the pool instead of diving headfirst into the deep end. Because you may find out when you jump into the deep end that there's no water in that pool. And you may have a rude landing to where if you were walking in, fully aware, you say, oh, there's no water here. You know, speaking of kind of the media and celebrities and when something bad happens, sort of the the reaction that the media has and celebrity has. And generally toward us, it's pretty negative. And... I was listening to, I think it was the Nerdist podcast, and I was listening to some back episodes. I just recently started listening to it, but I saw that there was uh, Michael Rooker is an actor. You'd probably classify him more as a character actor. Uh, I first saw him way back when he starred in uh, Henry, Portrait of a Serial Killer. Most people would know him as Merle on The Walking Dead. But anyway, on this uh, podcast that he was being interviewed on, he was uh, the subject of guns or something came up, and it turns out he is a co-owner or part owner of a uh, an actual gun range. So I wanted to uh, sort of give him a shout-out and let you guys know that not all celebrities are bad, not all celebrities are anti-gun. Uh, also, if you know of people, other people that are pro-gun, so people like Tom Selleck, and, uh, who's, who's taken some grief for being pro-gun, uh, and Michael Rooker, Right into the show, let me know. I'd like to, uh, a lot of times we we focus on, again, sort of the negative. We focus on, well, who's against us? And a lot of times we don't we don't think who's for us. All right, one quick thing that just kind of popped into my head, guys, and I've uh, 
like I said, I had the repair guy here, and so I've had to kind of go back and forth and stuff. Uh, so hopefully I don't repeat something. But from a logical standpoint, if you thought that the person that, that you see out there in this scenario, if you thought that that person was a potential criminal, logic would tell you that that person may be armed. At the very least, he may be armed. Excuse me, he may be armed with what would be called burglary tools. So he may have a pry bar, he may have a screwdriver, he may have a knife, all as part of helping him to to cut screens or to get in or, or to do things like that. Or he may have a firearm because he knows that he's going to go into a home and, and may encounter resistance. So does it make logical sense? Is it your safest bet then if you truly believe that this person is a potential burglar and you know that there's been a lot of burglaries in your in your area, does it make sense for you to get out of the safety of your vehicle? Or does it make sense to say, well, I'll drive around and kind of look for the guy, but I'm not going to get out because there is a potential for things to get worse. All right, well, that's going to kind of wrap it up on that. Let's go ahead and get into some feedback that we have for the show. Now, the last show that I had was in July 15th, so uh, we've got a little bit of of, uh, backlog, I guess, not a ton, but but we've got some. So uh, the first one comes from Michael, and he's in California, and this was back in July 20th, and he writes in, Tony, I was just out in the garage doing some reloading and listening to podcast number 99 about Zimmerman. You had mentioned some older Facebook posts, and I got inspired to try and contact you again. I really appreciate your comments on individual rights and militarization of the police. I'm especially ticked off when politicians allow those militarized police their constitutional rights while denying the rest of us. A recent example I think you mentioned in Podcast 98 was the late night amendment to New York's SAFE Act, allowing police and retired police to be exempt from magazine restrictions for their own personal and recreational use. Do you think there is an equal rights angle we should be using here while fighting for our gun rights? I think the main reason they make exceptions for the police is to pacify them. Do you think if they were forced to live under the same laws that we are, that they would be more likely to be active supporters of organizations like the NRA? I think you're doing a better job talking about these kind of subjects than some very well-paid radio hosts out there. Keep up the good work. Sincerely, Michael in California. Well, thank you for those kind words at the end, Michael. You know, it's an interesting thing, and I think on the uh, the next few upcoming shows, I'm going to be talking about the militarization of the police. I've talked about it a little bit in the past. Uh, right now, there is a book um, called The Rise of the Warrior Cop. I think it's by a gentleman by the name of uh, Radley Balco, I think is his name. And uh, I'm I'm actually going to pick that book up. I thought I could see if I could get it in the library, but I may have to uh, to get it like for the Kindle or something like that. Uh, but anyway, what he talks about is is the uh, militarization of the police. But those are some good questions you have, Michael, and some good points. And I've I've talked about in the past too that there really are classes in this country and that most of us are second-class citizens because we don't have access and the ability to exercise our rights as another class of people based on their particular job 
And I do think that if if the police had to leave their guns at home or if they had to, if they were limited to 10-round magazines or if they couldn't use AR-15s if it were banned in that particular state. So let's look at, um, oh, I think it's Massachusetts has, do they have a, an AR-15 ban? Or, well, I know I know California has that thing where you have to use the bullet button and all this other stuff and you're limited on, on magazine capacity. So if though in California they said, well, you guys in SWAT don't get to use automatic weapons. You guys in, in, in SWAT don't get to have magazines over that hold over 10 rounds. You don't get to have a magazine release that allows you just to drop the magazine free. They would say no officer safety. We can't have that because our officers won't be safe. It'll get them killed. But the same logic then should apply to you and I. If it's unsafe for the police to have and use, and it doesn't make sense for them to use, then it's unsafe for us. And if they did have to operate under those restrictions, oh, believe me, they would be members of organizations like the NRA. They would also have their unions would be up in arms. Um, they, They would not stand for anything like that. Now, as far as something, and I forget what Bush signed in uh, into law. I used to know the name of it, but it's escaping me right now. But basically what he signed in was a thing that if you were a retired policeman in good standing, or if you were a current, uh, I think their words wording was law enforcement, that if you went to, let's say, from Arizona to California, you were basically exempt from their laws so that you could carry a firearm. You could be concealed in a place maybe where concealed carry wasn't allowed. So uh, you could go to Illinois. You could go into Chicago. And this is my understanding of that law. And because you were part of the police, meaning that you could, and this would go for everything like FBI, sheriff's office, um, local police, all, all that stuff. I think you're, you're covered under that blanket. And you could go into places and take a firearm where I couldn't or you couldn't because we're not, uh, we're not part of a policing agency. Sometimes, however, there are things from a legislative uh, long-term strategy or plan to where what you do is you say, well, what we'll do is we will allow off-duty police officers will, in this piece of legislation, that they can take their firearm to such and such a place. They can go into a school even if they're off-duty. And what happens is, is over time, it's sort of like a baby step thing. And we've seen that happen uh, here in Arizona with some legislation where you say, well, if police officers are allowed to do it, if they you know do this, this, and this, then the citizenry should be allowed to do it. And so sometimes there is there is that. Generally, though, when legislators are doing those things, that is not what they're what they're doing. But there is a place. But usually, that's that's the exception rather than the rule. Usually, they're doing it. I think, like you said, uh, it's basically because they know that if they don't do that for the police, the police won't stand for it. So we have some feedback from Aaron, and this is dated July 20th, and he writes in, Tony, 
The first time in Colorado history a politician has been recalled or at least a special election is set for September 10th. No surprise. Morse is trying all kinds of things to keep his job. Now, let me kind of step in and we'll do a little bit of an aside. What Aaron is talking about is when the new restrictions went into place in Colorado, one of the main guys was Morse. I think he was the head of the legislator or the president of the Senate there. Basically, he ignored the feedback that he got, the overwhelming feedback that he got from all the constituents in the state that said, do not pass these laws. And he went ahead and they did it anyway. So now they're basically saying that we're going to, we're recalling you and we're going to kick you out. We're going to send you home because you're not going to listen to the people. You're supposed to be our representative and you're not doing that. So we'll jump back into Aaron's email. He said, this is a first half step to getting our rights back. The second half will be the successful election or the successful, uh, the recall. With a successful election, sending a very strong message to the rest of the politicians nationwide, we will not stand for our rights being taken without a fight. So again, you know, especially in a state like Colorado, which generally would be seen as more as a gun-friendly state, has a strong gun culture, states like Arizona, New Mexico, Montana, uh, Texas. Most of those states, most people would think that those would be pretty pretty strong uh, uh, gun states. However, in those states and in the big population cities, uh, you, you tend to have a, a larger, more liberal or left-leaning base that is anti-gun. If you look at Arizona, Phoenix generally is still pretty conservative. There's still a big base, but there's still a lot more people here that are that are more conservative or libertarian, or we could even just say pro-gun than are anti-gun. If you go down to Tucson, the political parties down there are much more liberal. So from Tucson is where you see a lot of the support and a lot of the stuff that comes for a lot of the anti-gun nonsense that gets uh, tried to run up the flagpole, so to speak. And sort of it's the same in Montana and the other big places. Like in Billings, you have a larger, uh, more liberal or democratic base than you do uh, maybe in some of the outlying areas. So what this recall does is it does send a message, especially in Colorado, that, look, if you're going to mess with our guns and you're going to try and pass these draconian things, when we're telling you not to, when the overwhelming majority of people, you're going to be gone. And we saw the same thing that happened with the uh, with the original assault weapons ban, is that there were consequences for those. And this guy is going to see that there are consequences. And what it does is it it sends a message out to states like Arizona, to states like New Mexico, Montana, Texas, that look, if you do if you try that stuff in your individual state, you're going to see recalls, and you're and you're going to lose your influence and your power, which is what they don't want to do. Uh, let's see. So again, Aaron, thanks for sending that in. Let's move on to Lawrence and Lawrence, uh, sent this in on July 23rd and I believe he is in Connecticut and he writes in, sir. Well, I thank you for that respectful tone. You don't have to call me, sir. Lawrence, you can just say Tony, uh, but it's nice to get that. Uh, sir, with all the recent changes made in Connecticut regarding the Sandy Hook shooting, the lawsuit has been filed against the state for violating our second amendment rights. These new laws have made it much harder for a simple recreational shooter to buy firearms, let alone feel comfortable doing so. 
The one question I'm pondering is if you think the lawsuit against the state will succeed or will we be suffering under those laws for a long time? And again, that's from Lawrence, and I think he's in Connecticut. I That is a tough one. And part of the reason why it's so tough and, and to, to say whether that lawsuit will be successful in pushing back the new restrictions is that there are other states that already have those in place. So if you look at Massachusetts, they have a 10-round limit. If you look at uh, like Hawaii and some of the other states, there are some of those limits that are already in place. It will depend, again, if enough people out there raise enough of uh, a, a hue and cry and raise enough of a stink and say, no, these things need to be changed. I don't know the political makeup out there. I don't know if it's too too liberal, and so you're going to have much more uh, of an uphill battle in reversing some of that stuff. To get it reversed on, on uh, constitutional grounds, basically saying that it would interfere with Second Amendment rights, um, again, I don't know because there are other states that have these restrictions in, in place. Uh, if something like that does happen here, though, maybe it will, it will go to loosening some of the things like places in New York, New Jersey, uh, although a lot of those places are going to be kind of pipe dreams. Anyway. Uh, let's go ahead and move on. Um, uh, I had another uh, quick email from Michael again, basically talking about that uh, Rise of the Warrior Cop from uh, Radley Balco, and I'll put a link. I'll, I'll put a link to him. All right, so that's going to kind of wrap up our feedback, and I think we're going to kind of uh, start to draw the show to a close. Uh, but because now, now usually I don't. Uh, I, I talked about this being the 100th episode, and I, I usually don't give too much credence to the numbers. It, it is kind of neat to be able to have to have a show where I've, where I've put out 100 episodes. And uh, like I said, I plan on doing a lot more. Hopefully I'll be able to put more shows out more often, but uh, those are always my hopes, but sometimes those hopes don't always get realized. But it is what they call a, uh, an acquirable skill, so hopefully I'll do a little bit better with putting stuff out. But like I said, go over, uh, like the Facebook page. You know, if you're not a fa- if you're not on Facebook uh, and, and you want to um, sort of get some updates, I'm also going to try and do better with Twitter to do updates on there as well. So if you don't like uh, um, Facebook because they're a little bit too invasive, Twitter is nice uh, uh, because it's it's there's a lot less personal information that they want from you. Uh, also, it's quicker, and you can send stuff. Uh, you can post pictures and do all that same jazz there, too. I want to thank you guys for kind of coming on the journey with me, and I hope you'll stick with me. I hope you guys got something out of the show today. Hopefully it wasn't too beating a dead horse or it wasn't too uh, uh, disjointed since I was kind of having to come in and out, um, although you probably won't be able to tell too much uh, on the show today. Uh, but I also wanted to to uh, acknowledge the fact that without the show that I wouldn't have some of the friendship that I have today and I wouldn't have gotten to meet just some really nice uh, stand-up people, people that are, are good, decent people. Um, and and uh, 
without trying to, you know, embarrass the guy or anything. Uh, a, a person that I consider a really good friend that I wouldn't have met without the show is uh, Ken Kowalski, who does the Rimfire podcast. Also, his his wife, uh, very nice people, great people, um, people that you would be proud to have as your neighbor, proud to have as your friend. Um, they're caring, they're kind, they, they don't want to run anybody down or take advantage of anybody. And most of the people, most of the people that I have met through this show are like that. They're good, kind, caring people. They're individuals who it's okay if, if maybe they don't want to do exactly what you're doing, but they don't want to try and run your life. They don't want to tell you what to do. Um, and, you know, sometimes that's kind of some of the problems that we have as a culture. And especially if you're listening to this show, uh, the majority of you, I'm, I'm sure, have libertarian leanings. Not all of you, and that's fine whether you do or you don't. But... If you have a lot of those those leanings and a lot of those beliefs, you don't really want to tell other people what to do. You don't want to say, well, you have to do stuff this way. And so sometimes that hurts us a little bit in in getting organized and in and doing things on the political fronts. And even some of the conservative uh, people that I know, uh, especially if they're if they're strong gun people, they they really kind of want to be left alone, and they don't they they don't want to to say you have to believe the way that I believe, or I can't be your friend. Now there now believe me, there are plenty of people from all the different parties and from all the different spectrums out there that that believe directly the opposite. That unless you believe what I believe, I don't want to talk to you. I don't want to know you. I don't want to do have anything to do with you. But in general, again, in general, most of the people, whether they're a Democrat, a Republican, a Libertarian, an Independent, a Greenie, if they're a gun person, in general, they don't really want to tell other people what they what they want to do. They want to say, because they understand, look, you know, you, you leave me alone on my guns. You don't. I'm not doing anything wrong. I'm not hurting anybody. I'm not harming anybody. So what business? What business is it of yours? Whether I have a magazine that holds 10 rounds or 30, what business of it of yours, whether I have an AR-15 or a Ruger 10-22, what does it matter? I'm not doing things that's harming people. So anyway, I'm going to start babbling and rambling, so I will call the show to a close. And again, thank you all for being on the journey with me, and I hope you'll stick with me, and I hope you guys got something out of the show. Take care, everyone. I'll talk to you next time. Bye. When demonstrators surrounded frightened drivers who found themselves trapped, the crowd forced them to turn around. Oakland police officers who had been near the corner retreated, leaving the helpless drivers without police protection nearby. It's unknown who gave that command. Here we go. One step at a time, don't be living on the line I don't need a friend, I got more than on the mind Sunshine in my brain, making everyone complain Radio in the heart, don't be being so strange Think I'm losing it